It goes without saying that World War II was a conflict that was fought on several fronts. Be it the air, land, or sea, its tentacles reached virtually every corner of the globe like some kind of violent, destructive octopus. There were the primary players, of course, with the United States, Great Britain, and Soviet Russia as the Allied forces, and Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and Fascist Italy serving as the Axis. There were also several other nations, great and small in between, caught in the crossfire and doing whatever they could to keep the enemy from carrying out their goals of world domination. Of the key players, however, perhaps none had as complex a trajectory as Italy. What began as an Axis power by the start of the conflict was, by the middle of it, a nation whose allegiances were changing. But this transition was not easy by any means, nor was it accomplished overnight. In fact, it ended up escalating to a full-fledged civil war that practically split the country in two. What led to Italy's departure from the Axis powers? How long did the Italian civil war last? And what were the various factions involved? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to part one of the Italian civil war on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Europe in the aftermath of the Great War, what would later become known as World War I, was a continent in shambles. Seeing the devastation of war firsthand, many people clamored for strong leadership and national unity. Italy in particular suffered tremendous losses, with some 460,000 soldiers having been killed on the front lines. In light of such devastation, Italy looked to the future with uncertainty. What could they do to rebuild their morale and fix their war-stricken society? The answer came in the form of a charismatic, albeit self-aggrandizing, political figure named Benito Mussolini, who in 1922 assumed power over Italy, with the forced resignation of the former prime minister, a liberal named Luigi Facta, by King Vittorio Emanuele III, the king of Italy at the time. The sovereign's reason for doing this was in the hopes of unifying Italy and restoring political order. Mussolini, who himself served in the Italian army during the Great War, had spent the years following the conflict organizing the National Fascist Party, the first of its kind in Europe. During this time, his zeal and enthusiasm earned him many followers throughout the country. Fascism, which is based upon the Roman symbol of the fasces, an axe tied to a bundle of sticks, symbolic of a magistrate's authority and power, Mussolini promised would restore Italy to the glory days of its Roman forebears. Perhaps ironically, on Halloween of 1922, he became prime minister of the nation. The first few years of his leadership were essentially a purge of all his political rivals and opponents. His goal was to establish a totalitarian state in which he was the supreme leader, or il duce, as he's more infamously known in Italian. When he took office in 1922, his fascists made up a small percentage of the right-wing coalition government that was in place at the time. He began by obtaining dictatorial powers from the legislature, which was legal under the Italian constitution of the day, for one year. With his authority bestowed upon him, Mussolini integrated the Italian Fasces of Combat, a military organization he helped found, into the armed forces, creating the Voluntary Militia for National Security in January of 1923 as a result. This act would further merge the party with the state. Economically, he favored the wealthy agrarian and industrial classes and passed legislation that would bring an end to trade unions. But, not surprisingly, his reforms didn't stop there. Between 1925 and 1927, he slowly but surely dismantled any and all constitutional restraints on his power, and formed what can best be described as a police state. 
A law that was passed on Christmas Eve 1925 made it official by changing his title from prime minister to, quote, head of government, unquote. No longer responsible to the Italian parliament, he could only be removed under the authority of King Emanuele III himself. With the passing of this law, local autonomy was nixed in favor of local leaders appointed by the Italian Senate, who replaced elected mayors and council members. Following two assassination attempts in 1926 by Irish woman Violet Gibson and Italian teenager Anteo Zamboni, respectively, the latter of whom was lynched on the spot, all other political parties in Italy were outlawed. Despite such terrifying practices and prospects, however, life under Mussolini's rule was decidedly, and surprisingly, not a living hell for a vast majority of the common people in its formative years. I should clarify here that I am not defending his actions, nor those of the National Fascist Party in any way, but am merely offering the events of those early days from the then-Italian perspective. One of Mussolini's first orders of business was to launch a series of ambitious public projects to combat economic setbacks or unemployment levels. Not only did they put the Italian people to work, but these projects were a sense of national pride in the country itself. Several new towns and agricultural centers were built in what was known as the Battle for Wheat, in which some 5,000 farms were opened, providing grain, milk, and other staples to the people. The Battle for Land in 1928, though only partially successful, single-handedly saw the draining of the Pontine Marsh, a nuisance since the days of the Roman Republic, for farming and harvesting purposes, and allowed landowners to control subsidies. Its ideals, however, often clashed with those of the battle for wheat, and the latter project was scrapped in 1940. What's perhaps most startling, however, is that prior to its alliance with Nazi Germany in 1936, fascist Italy did not adopt any eugenics or racial purity laws. Black Africans who hailed from former or current Italian colonies were not discriminated against in its early years, and the country's Jewish population was also unharmed, with Mussolini famously proclaiming them as, quote, the descendants of those who came to Italy under the early Roman kings, and should therefore remain untouched, unquote. But when Mussolini signed a pact known as the Rome-Berlin Axis with German Chancellor Adolf Hitler on October 25, 1936, all that changed, though Mussolini would later claim that it was, quote, solely for political purposes, unquote, and that he found the Nazis' racial purity laws as stupid and absurd. Regardless, the systematic persecution of all those not-deemed Italians began with the passing of such legislation. In addition to such discriminatory practices and laws, Mussolini became increasingly obsessed with demographics, which caused him to decree that Britain and France were finished as European powers. France at the time, for example, had a death rate that exceeded its birth rate, while Italy was experiencing a high birth rate. In his eyes, Italy as well as Nazi Germany were set to be the new rulers of Europe, which is one of the primary reasons why he agreed to set alliance in 1936. To him, foreign policy and international relations were a social Darwinist struggle between the strong, virile nations of the world against those that were weak. As such, he had no interest in aligning himself with either Britain or France. But as war in Europe loomed with each passing day, Britain wished to align themselves with the fascist Italian state, as the two countries had been allies during the previous conflict. France, on the other hand, expressed their concern over Italy's recent invasion of Libya and North Africa, and wanting to protect their own colonial interests there, planned to strike the Italians on African soil. But Mussolini's undersecretary of war production, Carlo Favagrossa, advised against getting involved in any skirmish whatsoever due to Italy's comparatively weak industrial sector, in comparison with those of the rest of Western Europe, which, in his expert opinion, wouldn't be ready until 1942. Hitler, on the other hand, was far more optimistic, proclaiming in late 1939 that, quote, so long as the Duce lives, one can rest assured that Italy will seize every opportunity to achieve its imperialistic aims. 
War finally broke out after months of increasing tensions and fears on September 6, 1939, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Britain and France quickly declared war on Germany as a result. Despite Favagrosa's warnings and thinking that the conflict wouldn't last very long, Mussolini in turn declared war on Britain and France on June 10, 1940, calling the fight against them, quote, a life-or-death struggle between two opposing ideologies, fascism and the plutocratic and reactionary democracies of the West, unquote. When the Germans invaded France that same month, the Italians joined their allies in the fray, fighting along the infamous Alpine line along the border between France and Italy. Within weeks, they succeeded in capturing southeastern France, namely Nice and Monaco. But Mussolini's ambitions, much like his ego, continued to increase. While Hitler was preoccupied with gaining control of Europe, Il Duce was interested in dismantling Britain's holdings in Africa. Anticipating the collapse of Great Britain at the hands of the Nazis, he sent his forces to invade Egypt from neighboring Libya, which was under his control at the time. From there they bombed British Mandate Palestine, present-day Israel, and advanced down into Sudan, Kenya, and Somaliland, what's now Somalia. While Italy was successful at capturing this latter colony, the former two proved harder to obtain, as the British weren't willing to give them up without a fight. At the same time, Mussolini sent the Italian Air Force to Belgium to aid the Germans in the notorious Blitz campaign against the British in London and invaded Greece, triggering the short-lived Greco-Italian War. With the help of the Royal Air Force, however, the Greeks were able to push the Italians back to Albania, thus postponing the invasion of their country. As early as 1941, trouble was brewing for Italy. Operation Compass was well underway, in which British, Allied, and Indian Commonwealth forces were driving the Italians out of Egypt and back into Libya, amounting in major and devastating losses for the Italian army. As the British won battle after battle, the battered Italian defenses began to crumble. Upon addressing the several defeats, Mussolini was quite candid, stating that, quote, When the enemy wins a battle, it is useless and ridiculous to seek, as the English do in their incomparable hypocrisy, to deny or diminish it. But the Germans rushed to their aid, sending in the notorious Africa Corps in an attempt to protect Italy's African conquests. But it wasn't a total loss for Mussolini and his forces. An Axis victory in southeastern Europe, Yugoslavia specifically, meant the German-Italian annexation of Greece at last. But then, on June 22, 1941, the Nazis launched the most ambitious campaign they had yet undertaken with Operation Barbarossa. The goal was simple to advance on Russia and take control of her capital, Moscow, laying siege and waste to the Soviet forces. While Hitler had not asked Mussolini for aid in this endeavor, Il Duce took it upon himself to send an Italian army corps to the Eastern Front in the hopes of scoring a decisive victory to restore and boost Italy's morale following the series of crushing defeats in Greece and North Africa. On June 25th, he inspected the units in Verona. Yes, that Verona, made famous as the setting for William Shakespeare's classic play Romeo and Juliet, which would serve as his launchpad to Russia. On July 5th, the Corps disembarked, and, at a meeting with Hitler in August, the Führer accepted Mussolini's commitment to send further troops into the fray. It was a fateful decision that would cost Il Duce his reputation, as much of the Italian public felt that Operation Barbarossa wasn't their fight. They were right, as proven by the devastating losses the Italians suffered on the Eastern Front. To make matters worse, on December 7th that year, Imperial Japanese forces attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Up to that point, the United States had maintained an isolationist approach to the mounting conflict that had been erupting in both Europe and the Far East. With this unprecedented attack on American soil, Hawaii was a U.S. territory at the time, they would be dragged into the conflict. While the Nazis were overjoyed by this turn of events, the Italians, namely her foreign minister at the time, Galeazzo Ciano, expressed his concerns in his diary. Quote, I am not too sure about the final advantages of what has happened. One thing is now certain. 
that America will enter the conflict and that the conflict will be so long that she will be able to realize all her potential forces, unquote. Mussolini, too, was happy with this news. But in the back of his mind, he knew his country wasn't ready for a prolonged fight. With her resources virtually depleted thanks to the several economic campaigns of the 1930s, as well as the crushing blows her forces received in North Africa, Greece, and the Eastern Front combined, Italy was on the brink of economic and sociopolitical collapse. Tempers flared amongst the Italian public. The people had had enough. It was this backdrop that would set the stage for the Italian Civil War, which would rock the country to its very core. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Please join me next Thursday for part two of this special segment on the Italian Civil War. If you enjoyed this episode and found it informative and exciting, please consider becoming a monthly supporter to ensure future quality content. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Liking and sharing help as well, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next week.